0: My Dead Friends. I have begun, when I'm weary and can't decide an answer to a bewildering question, to ask my dead friends for their opinion, and the answer is often immediate and clear. Should I take the job, move to the city? Should I try to conceive a child in my middle age? They stand in unison, shaking their heads and smiling. Whatever leads to joy, they always answer. To more life and less worry. I look into the vase where Billy's ashes were. It's green in there, a green vase. And I ask Billy if I should return the difficult phone call and he says yes. Billy's already gone through the frightening door. Whatever he says, I'll do. Sometimes. Sometimes if you move carefully through the forest, breathing like the ones in the old stories who could cross a shimmering bed of dry leaves without a sound, you come to a place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny but frightening requests, conceived out of nowhere but in this place beginning to lead everywhere. Request to stop what you are doing right now and to stop what you are becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you. Questions that have no right to go away. So this morning we're doing something called a question box sermon, which is a tradition in many Unitarian Universalist congregations. So I asked you all to submit questions, and some came in during the week, but there's an, also an opportunity right now to ask any questions that you would like to hear me address during the time for the sermon this morning. So you have that blue slip of paper, and there's, if you don't have a pen, there are some pens on the on the cubbies for the hymnals at the back of the sanctuary. And Jennifer is gonna play music for a little bit, so I invite you to write down a question and then pass it to the center aisle where one of our ushers is going to collect it. Thank you for these precious questions and these ones that came in over email this week. Um, And I'm probably not going to have time to get to all of them, but know that I will read them and think about them, and they will inform my preaching choices in the coming months. Um, Okay. So the first question is one that, that, two related questions that came in to me during the week which is, why do people who grew up UU feel less need for church as young adults? And how do we help our children and youth continue to be UU throughout their lives? So first, the, the numbers. About 90% of Unitarian Universalist adults grew up in another tradition, or no tradition at all. We are a, a community that is almost entirely adult converts. And we are not unique in that. I um, was talking with with Father Randall, the Episcopal priest at St. Luke's this week, and he said 80 to 90% of Episcopalians grew up in another tradition. Uh, So I think the real challenge in retaining, retaining people throughout their lives in Unitarian Universalism is that church for children and youth is really different than church for adults. So... Your children right now are in small groups, learning, interacting, doing stories, and having conversations, watching film clips. And that's not what happens in this room on Sunday mornings. And so for a lot of our children and youth, they, they age into adulthood and come to church, and it's a, to- a very foreign experience. It's a different culture. There are different norms around what you do on Sunday mornings when you're an adult versus when you're a kid, and studies show that the thing that makes children stay in their religious tradition as adults is the amount of time spent in worship. So if they're familiar with the rhythms and rituals of the church, the sanctuary, they tend to stay more, and for a long time, that's not what Unitarian Universalists did at all. We had separate children's programming on Sunday mornings. And so this church, by having the children here for 15 to 20 minutes every Sunday and longer on some Sundays, is starting to address that. But it's, it's a challenge, and it's a challenge for everyone. And I think one of the challenges, too, is in addition to being introduced into this foreign way of doing church, um, a lot of our young people move around the time they graduate from high school for jobs or for school. And so integrating into a brand new church as probably the youngest adult in the room can be really intimidating. And not everybody wants to do that. So that's the, the challenge. I know at one point, the people used to tell gr- youth when they graduated from high school, see you when you have kids. And that's not quite the same now, but it's still kind of sometimes the unspoken expectation. And one of the things that excites me about People's Church is that we have a vibrant young adult group and are really working to reach that gap age. Okay. So, is there a best way to deal with the difficulties of having moved on from the religion of family and friends who need help understanding? Um, so... There's a lot of different ways to deal with this, and a lot of it depends on the context. If, if you've left and now everybody says you're going to hell, it's very different than if you've left and people sort of blessed you on your journey. Um, one of the good ways would be to come to my class that I'm teaching on Tuesday, where we're going to talk about religious autobiography and those faith journeys. But I know with a number of people who have told me that I'm going to hell, The right answer is just to decide that's not something we're going to talk about and it's hard to do especially with the more proselytizing out there but just to name that this is not going to be part of our relationship if you can't be respectful of my choices is an important way forward and it's hard and as someone who grew up Unitarian Universalist, I imagine a lot of you in this room have better answers to this question because it is your lived experience and it is not mine. Um, why are megachurches so popular? Um, I've gone on field trips to mega churches because I find them so fascinating, and I think part of the appeal is that, first of all, it's very easy to join. I mean, I've been to mega churches that have basically a Starbucks inside and like have bouncy houses for the kids, and like there's really, I think they call that like seeker-sensitive, that it's really designed to get you in that first time. And then another thing that works so well for mega churches a lot of times is they have really Uh, tight-knit, small groups. And so you have your neighborhood group that's like 10 families, and you're expected to meet with them once a week. And you really get, you get a very strong sense of community and with a strong dose of theology that I don't agree with. But having that community can be such a powerful thing that so many people are looking for. So I think that really helps. Um, I think their theology, for the most part, is really easy to understand. The rules are very clear. Um, you do this, you don't do that, and then you're, then you're guaranteed whatever it is they're promising. And that, that's appealing. If you check off one, two, and three, and you're set, then you can be done. And we, don't, we're, we ask a lot more of you from this place. We ask you to keep searching over and over and over again and aren't going to hand you those answers. Um, and one of, i think another reason that they're so popular is they're really entertaining so i have gone to mega churches and there's like a rock band and screens and it's just really it's a pleasant experience it feels very familiar and they try to do this cultural i mean it's very much especially for young people it's been a really It was really appealing and it was fascinating because the one that I went to the most just to check it out was in Seattle and there was no one over age 40 in the whole church, which is just not what I'm looking for in church because I love that we're a multi-generational community. But if you're looking for, if you're new to town and looking for friends, that might be a good place to start and you get connected so quickly that it really serves a need. So this is one that came in over email, which is, why do more women attend church than men? And since I got that earlier, I did some research, and I couldn't find any answers that weren't deeply insulting to both men and women. (laughs) So there were answers like, um, you know, men don't come to church because there are flowers there and the walls are pastel, which um, I hope that's not a reason. And, or that they're too busy worshiping their own ego, which is also is really insulting. Um, but as I was looking, looking through this, they, the people who study this named that this is really, this is a phenomenon in Protestant and Catholic Christianity in, in Europe and the US, but it's not in other religious traditions. So in Protestant Christianity and Catholicism, church attendance is about 60% women. And Unitarian Universalism tracks, tracks with that for the most part. But in Judaism or Islam or Hinduism, it's much more gender balanced. And some people are saying that, that it's because it's a more, often more challenging and expecting more of you, and somehow that appeals to men in ways that other things don't. I don't know. But I think it's a really interesting question um, that someone should do some better research about the answers out there are not very good as far as I could tell. So how do I stop being afraid of change and take a leap of faith to transition to something new? Um, I think the answer to that question is to do it even though you are afraid. I think so many of us think that fear needs to be overcome before we take that first step, and that's just, at least in my experience, not how that works. You You make the way by walking. So you start that transition, that change, and somehow the fear... Dissipates when you're, on, when you're on the path you know you need to be on. Um, and there's something about naming that fear and holding it and saying, yes, I'm afraid and I'm going to do this that, that I think is where courage comes from. It's not an absence of fear, but, but working with it and walking through it. What's the significance of of the universalism part of our UU heritage? We almost always call ourselves Unitarians or simply UUs. It's almost as if the second U in our name was an afterthought. So we got the name Unitarian Universalism in 1961. Um when the Unitarian and Universalists merged to form the Unitarian Universalist Association. And when that merger happened, the, the Unitarians had the people, or most of the people, and the Universalists had most of the money. <laughs> so it, it worked out for them both. Um, and so there's a lot of people who, I mean, including this church that was historically universe, or Unitarian, that just sort of kept calling themselves that, and I think that is why we, why we do that. Um, but I think the universalist part of our, of our her- religious heritage really speaks to us more in this present moment. So, there, I mean, both parts of our names are about theological fights that aren't particularly relevant to most of us at this point. So the Unitarians were fighting about the, the nature of the Trinity, and the universalists were fighting about what happens to us when we die. So the universalism, it means, is for universal salvation. So the universalists believe that everyone goes to heaven, no exceptions, and there's nothing that we can do that would separate us from the love of God. And while our theological language has shifted, and not everyone believes in God in that way in our congregations, we do believe that everyone is worthy of love. And that's, I mean, we have our first principle on the wall there, which is the inherent worth and dignity of every person. And that's really a universalist message. So, so I think we do I mean we don't always say the whole name but as someone pointed out to me the Unitarian is the adjective and the Universalist is the noun and so it's actually the Universalist is more important but <laughs> that's, you have to be very into grammar for that to be a convincing <laughs> argument I think so that's a great question okay What is the meaning of the symbols at the front of the church commons? So we're talking about this quilt. And what is the meaning of of the symbols relative to Unitarian Universalism? So we have the star of David of Judaism at the top. We have the crescent and star of Islam. We have the... (laughs) <laughs> yin yang of um, Taoism and other eastern traditions we have the flaming chalice in the middle the cross of Christianity I don't remember what that's called the, is that the om symbol? ok of, of Hinduism and other religions of India and then the the wheel which symbolizes the eightfold path of Buddhism and so our we use all of those sources some more than others as we craft our our spiritual journeys we as Unitarian Universalists, we have these statements of what are the six sources of our tradition, and they include the Judeo-Christian tradition and sources of the, or the, the world, world religions as well. And so I think they having them up in the commons like this, I can't speak to why it was placed there, but for me it symbolizes that, that there are many paths to truth and that we are walking just on one of them or we are each walking on one of them, but there are many out there for us to explore and access and and learn from. So this one, I'm just not going to answer, but just read, because somebody needed it to be said. Why does the kitchen become a place to abandon coffee cups? It's quite a theological conundrum. So I'm spiritual, but not really religious. Maybe I don't really understand the difference. Um, I'm not going to be able to cite the dictionary definitions of those terms, but, but to me, um, spiritual is, is a much more individual practice, and religious, being religious is more about institutions and community. So I have a UU minister friend who likes to say, I'm religious, I'm not spiritual, because he is an institutionalist. Uh, and I think, I think almost everyone is both because we are both walking that individual spiritual journey where we're trying to make sense of the world. And we are doing that in community. So whether it's the church community or communities of friends or family, we, none of us are in this alone. And for me, that's what the religious aspect of that, of, that's the duality there about being religious and not spiritual. And I think even people who say they're spiritual but not religious have some sort of community, or I hope they do because this life is too hard and too confusing to be doing it alone. Here's another good question. What is your motivation for circulating in the lobby in your robe before the service? Uh, most of the time, I'm trying to find someone. <laughs> so it, whether it's um, you know making sure you know working through a last-minute detail with the music program or making sure our chalice lighters are here, there's often someone that I'm scanning the crowd trying to see. But I also try to be out there just to greet people in the morning. Um, And I'm already in the robe, largely for AV reasons, so they can wire me up and get the microphone placed correctly and so we don't have to do that last minute. So I'm hoping at some point to have enough of the details worked out that I can stand there and, and greet and be more present. But right now, it's kind of more of a frantic scanning for whoever it is I need to find. Um, What support can or does Unitarian Universalism or Unitarian Universalists offer for those suffering from grief, from a recent loss, or one far in the past? Um, So first, a historical note on this question. So when the Universalist Church of America was at its peak, it was in the decades following the Civil War. And that was because there were so many people who lost people they loved, mostly young men in the war, who were really worried about their, their souls, if they would be in heaven, if they would be reunited. And the Universalists promised that everyone would be reunited in heaven because that's where everyone would be. And so Universalism especially really spoke to all of those families who were grieving in the aftermath of the Civil War and actually changed a lot of the theology of mainline Protestantism because they grew so popular that then everybody kind of shifted to be more like them. Um, But in the present, I think one one of our real strengths is that we are able to see the world as it is. We're less likely to spout those kind of horrible responses that we've all heard when grieving like, God needed another angel or everything happened for a reason because we're we have a more complicated worldview than that we know that sometimes things horrible things just happen and there isn't a reason it's just the way the world is and I think another support we have to offer is is we know that there's a lot of different ways to go through the go through the world and especially to go through grief I mean, grief is complicated and hard and we, we all grieve in so many ways on so many different timelines and so many different processes and have good days and bad days and even though they say there are five stages of grief, it's not like we work through them on a specific timeline. And so just to be able to hold that complicated reality that, that some of us have suffered enough loss that we will always be grieving. And some of us, it doesn't hit in the same way. And we can be a community for that. I know some churches offer specific resources around grieving, like grief groups that people are invited to come and connect with one another in in grief for as long as they need it or rituals around days like Day of the Dead, or you know the first Sunday of the year, looking back on those who died the previous year. And I think that's a, a great thing to explore here, because all of us live lives touched with grief of one sort or another. So how might we bring that, bring that into this community and support one another on those journeys? So here's another one, which is, Would you please share the words you spoke after joys and concerns that we might add it to our own practice? And I would be happy to do that. Um, The words are actually an adaptation from the Book of Common Prayer in the Episcopal Church. In their evening prayer, they talk about everybody who is watching, working, and weeping that night. And that's something my husband and I used to go to Episcopal Compline services together, and it's song and beautiful. And, and I, especially when I was working at the hospital as a chaplain, I would, I would sing it to myself as I walked home as a way of sort of letting go of all of the suffering that I saw that day, because it would get overwhelming. And so to just let that sit and know that, you know, whether it's something, something holy or just my chaplain co workers, those people were going to be watched over. That night, so I can, we can get that on the church website or somewhere. So, this is a, a very long one that came in via email. So, you use have no creed. We certainly have no common agreement on the nature of transcendental reality. However, we do have the UU principles which define common ethical standards that, although not binding on us, are commonly agreed on by us. But the UU principles, although admirable and worthy of respect because the world would be a much better place if everyone lived out these principles, are written in bureaucratic language that is not perhaps the most inspiring language. Can UUism be made more unified more emotionally compelling and more evangelical by either supplementing or modifying the UU principles with something else? What could this something else be? If this could be done, should it be done? In other words, how can the UU principles be made to sing to the heart? So for those of you who are not familiar with the UU principles, they're conveniently on the wall right now, although they're, they are a bit simplified. So imagine a few more multisyllabic words on there, um, and they have come to play a really interesting role in Unitarian Universalism. They were they were adopted in the early 1980s um, as I mean as part of the bylaws of the Unitarian Universalist Association. They were an update of what was put together about 15 years previously that was um, that was not they had words like mankind and brotherhood of man and that were not speaking to the feminist concerns of the day and so they went through a long process to update and gave us these these principles but it was a i mean it was a process of task forces and bu- bureaucratic maneuvers and voting and amendments at the general assembly and then they've become pretty close to a creed which is really interesting so we've had these for about for about 30 years, and nobody expected them to last that long. They thought they'd just continue to be revised and changed. But now I think the seven principles are sort of solidified into something. I mean, I think there would be riots if we decided we only needed five or something like that or or we reworded them, which is really curious that this bit of bylaw has become this holy text. but I know there are, there are a lot of Unitarian Universalists trying to figure out how do we encapsulate who we are in something that's a lot shorter than that, and a lot easier to understand. And one of my favorites is people have revived an old Universalist slogan, which is loving the hell out of the world, <laughs> which I think that's a great, a great catchphrase for who we are and works you know theologically and is a little cheeky. And... And I think it's who we are. We are trying to love the hell out of the world. So there's that, there's some other, and I know there's some stirrings about maybe trying to do a bylaw revision around these things at this point in the UUA, which I think would be a really interesting thing to see what comes from it, but it's not going to be poetry. And so I think we need to look for other other sources and some congregations are coming up with missions that are more poetic. But I don't think it's going to come from the seven principles and the bureaucratic approval from a thousand congregations. Um, why do women feel the need to take responsibility and apologize for things that men don't? Um, the short answer to that question would be patriarchy. And <laughs> The long answer is that women are socialized in really different ways than men. And I think we've, you know, speaking as a woman, I know I've learned that an an apology, even when you don't actually mean it, sort of greases the wheels of of relationship and communication. And and I've actually been trying for the past few years to not apologize unless I actually mean it. And it's really challenging, because I've been so enculturated to say I'm sorry. Like I was putting, putting my voicemail together and leaving the outgoing message and it was, I'm sorry I missed your call. And I'm like, actually, like, it's fine. There must be a reason. I don't need to apologize and have that be the first thing. But I think so many of us are taught that that's how we are supposed to interact. And so it's, it's a challenging thing. And I think most, most men are not taught that same way of being in the world. So I got a couple variations on the question of, of why me and why do bad things happen to good people. And even though I preached on this a few weeks ago, it's a question that never goes away. And for me, the, the truest answer is why not, that bad things happen and, there's, and we don't live in a, a universe that is balanced, so if we do good, good things happen to us. And I don't believe that there's someone up there keeping a, a tally mark of everything we do to make, to make it all balanced in the end, or to bestow blessings on those who most deserve them. That's just not the world that I see. And so the truest answer for why bad things happen is just that they do, and, and that the universe seems largely indifferent about it and then we get to decide how we're going to live in that universe that is unfair. So, I've been asked this question before in this way, so I wanted to pose it to you. This is a yes or no question. Do you believe in God? Yes or no? And then please elaborate a bit on your answer. (laughs) So, I do believe in God and it's not it's not the God I've heard described in in theology textbooks, but it's a God I, I only know through poetry. That's where I've heard it described and through my own experience. So a number of the, the attributes of the of of the monotheistic traditions, I mean they say that God is, is all knowing, benevolent and um all powerful. And that's not the God I believe in. I can't believe if that's who God is, then this must be the best universe we've got, and I can't believe that that is. I don't think an all-powerful God would, would have the world be so full of suffering. I don't think an all-knowing God would allow that to happen as well. And so the God that, that I believe in is a God of love that spends a lot of time brokenhearted at the realities of this world that is alongside us, but does not possess the power to fix it and make it right, but just weeps as we weep in this world. I think I have time for one more question. There are so many good ones. Uh is unitarian universalism anything goes can you believe anything you want and be a unitarian universalist so this is one of the questions i i got at the ministerial fellowship committee which is the the big scary committee that you have to preach to and then answer questions from for about 50 minutes if you want to be a Unitarian Universalist minister. And um, the answer is that you cannot believe anything that you want and be a Unitarian Universalist. I mean, we have these these ethical principles that, that guide us. We're not all required to believe all of them, but they guide us. And um, you have to believe something that can be tested by reason and by experience and still hold true or true enough you have to believe something that is life-giving you you can't believe something that sets your group or yourself above as better than another group or other people and be unitarian universalist and that still leaves a lot of different beliefs that leaves you know humanism and atheism and Christianity and any of the world religions off there if that's what you choose to follow, as well as paganism and those of us creating our own paths. But there are some real boundaries of things that are not not allowed within Unitarian Universalism. And we usually don't see what they are until we get someone comes in and brushes up against them in ways that we're like, Oh, of course that can't be and And there's also a challenge in the question of can you believe anything you want? Because beliefs are not really about desire. They're about making sense, our best attempts to make sense of the world. So there's a lot of things I wish I could believe, but when I am in the world and look around and think and reflect on my experience, they do not seem true. So I think as Unitarian Universalists, we believe what we must. We believe what helps us get through the day and do what we can to make this world a little bit better. So thank you for your questions. This was really a great practice to get to know some of you a little bit, and there's still some wonderful questions that I will be addressing in worship in the future, and probably some of these that I'll be going into greater depth when I get a chance to really think and study and reflect on them.